Good afternoon, and welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Pete Nichols, Organizing Director of Waterkeeper Alliance, a global network of water advocates. The Eco News Report is brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, Eco News. Today, my guest is Leslie Adams. Leslie is the senior organizer for the Western United States for Waterkeeper Alliance. And she's here to talk to us about the Jordan Cove Liquefied Natural Gas Pipeline and Export Facility Project, which is being proposed in Southern Oregon. Welcome to the Eco News, Leslie. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So maybe we could start out a little bit by you letting our listeners hear a little bit about you and what you do. Yeah, I was born and raised in California, and I moved up to Southern Oregon almost 20 years ago to finish my undergraduate degree at Southern Oregon University, and I fell in love with the the rivers and the mountains and the people and have stayed here ever since. Over the years, I've worked in a variety of social and environmental justice campaigns, and for the last five years, I have been the Western organizer for Waterkeeper Alliance. But prior to that, my entree into the waterkeeper world is that I founded Rogue River Keeper, which is based in Ashland and works to protect and restore the Rogue Basin from its headwaters at Crater Lake National Park to its mouth at Gold Beach. Well, let's dive right in and talk a little bit about this Jordan Cove LNG project and some of the history about it and, and currently where, where it's at and where it sits. Yeah, so Jordan Cove LNG, it's named after a part of Cove Bay, which is on the southern Oregon coast. And, boy, this project has been around in some fashion for about 13 years. And LNG stands for liquefied natural gas, which is primarily made of methane gas. And... So when people want to ship gas across an ocean, they can't do that unless they liquefy it. So this proposal is for a 230-mile pipeline that would be constructed from an existing hub on the Oregon and California border to Coos Bay, where a terminal would be built to receive the gas from that pipeline and then it would be liquefied with a power plant in Coos Bay. It would be put on massive tankers and shipped across the Pacific Ocean to customers in Asia. And when the boats are received on the other end, they would regasify the liquefied natural gas to make it usable again. So this project originally actually was proposed in 2005 as an import project. They were... Mm arguing at the time that the United States needed more gas and so that we were going to receive, we're going to be on the receiving end of these LNG tankers. And that's how I got involved. Since then, the project has changed considerably. There was a coalition of folks that started. Actually, one of the reasons I started Rogue Riverkeeper was because I didn't see an organization in Southern Oregon that was really focusing some time and energy and resources and looking into this Jordan Cove project. And so we got involved in 2006-2007, and that was when the fracking boom was really gaining a lot of momentum in the United States, and it became clear that there was absolutely no need for us to import gas. Mm-hmm. And the company finally admitted that in 2011, after we had been legally challenging them for years, and they withdrew their application and said, you're right, never mind, we're not going to import gas, we would like to export 
gas. Mm-hmm. And so now the project for the last well, five or six years has been the Jordan Cove LNG export project, where we're proposing to take our quote-unquote surplus gas from the Rocky Mountains in Canada and export it to countries on the other side of the ocean that are willing to pay much more than Americans currently do for that same gas. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, back in 2002, we had a liquefied natural gas import facility proposed here in Humboldt Bay, which some of our listeners may remember. And after a significant outcry by the community and environmentalists alike, the company did scrap plans for the project. I think we had 1,500 people show up to a city council meeting, and that kind of put the the nail in the coffin of that project. But, you know, that action and threat to the bay was actually – led to the formation of Humboldt Baykeeper, which I served as Baykeeper and executive director for eight years. So, And it was interesting to hear that, you know, the Jordan Cove was initially an import facility as well. So I guess my question is for our listeners, you know, why the shift in 15 years or in your case, you know, less than that to importing natural gas to exporting? It's a good question. And it's a very dynamic market. Oil and gas, the global market for oil and gas is very volatile. And I read a headline this morning that Trump pulling out of the Iran deal is having some impacts on, of course, on oil markets, which then is having impacts on gas markets. So I want to learn more about how that is going to play into this. But I do think, by the way, congratulations to everyone who worked on that Humboldt project in the early 2000s. That was a great success story. And I first wanted to note that we still don't have any LNG terminal infrastructure on the West Coast of the United States, the Mm -hmm. continental West Coast. Mm -hmm. So California, Oregon, and Washington have never had an LNG terminal built for import or export. And we intend to keep it that way. Right. But that is in contrast to the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast, where we do have infrastructure to both import and export LNG. But for many years, they were all import facilities, and we were importing that gas. But really, it was the technological advances in fracking that really dramatically changed the gas market in the United States, where we started accessing gas in ways that we couldn't previously, or if we did, it wasn't economical to access it and pull it out of the ground. And so fracking allowed us to access that gas in an economical way, and suddenly we were flooding the market with gas. And so I think the Jordan Cove, the original proposal in 2005 was kind of in the waning days of that era where they were trying to build import proposals on the West Coast, like the one in Humboldt. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it became increasingly clear that they just could not justify an import proposal. But I'll give you a little bit of my conspiracy theory on this, which is this project has a lot of different aspects to it. It's very complicated and interesting. One of the issues at play here is the use of eminent domain. And so of this 230-mile pipeline that's proposed, about 150 miles of it is proposed for private land. So farmers, ranchers, folks that you know bought their 20 acres to retire on and live out the rest of their life, they're now being threatened by a Canadian pipeline company with the use of eminent domain. And so the, the, the company behind this project is called Pembina Pipeline, based in Calgary, Canada. And they are going out to these landowners and saying, hey, you know, we want to make a deal. We want to give you really pennies related to what your land is worth to build this pipeline and have a forever right-of-way 
And the, the landowners are saying, we don't want it. You know, after right. 13 years of trying to negotiate with landowners, they only have about 35% of the landowners under contract. And so that's about 65% of these landowners are saying, no way, we don't want it. And the, this Canadian company is asking the United States government for permission to use eminent domain and see that private property. And back to my conspiracy theory idea, I think the company was smart enough to see a couple years down the road, and they knew if they could get an LNG import terminal permitted and built, it would be much easier to do that because they could argue that eminent domain requires a public necessity. Mm -hmm. The government's only going to grant the ability to condemn private property if there's an argument that it's for the greater good. It's for the public. So, say, you know, a freeway or a gas pipeline that's going to bring gas to a town. And so for an import facility, it was like, oh, well, the United States needs gas. Americans need gas. And so we have to condemn this property and build this infrastructure so that we can bring gas to the United States. It looks really differently when we don't need the gas. We actually are looking at a Canadian company that wants to mine gas and then ship it to Asia and sell it for three to five times more than what Americans are paying for it. Right. So what's the, what's the public benefit there? You know, like, right. how, how can they really argue that? So I thought from the beginning that the company wanted to get this proposal permitted and built as an import facility, and then similar to projects that we've seen on the Gulf and Atlantic coast, they file permits to retrofit the facility and change it from import to export. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they were trying to do, but they just couldn't, they couldn't with a clear face say that that was actually their intention. And so they ultimately had to pull their project, like I said, in 2011, and then they refiled it immediately and said, never mind, we want it as export, not import. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's two pieces of this project, right? And you, maybe you can explain this to me and, and our listeners. You know, there is the the Jordan Cove export facility, and then there's the Pacific Connector pipeline, correct? Yeah, and they were originally proposed by two different companies. The terminal was proposed by Verison, which, again, a Canadian energy company. And then the pipeline was proposed by Williams Pipeline. But those companies have since left the project. Verison was bought out by Pembina last year. So, again, another Canadian gas company. And they also bought out the pipeline project from Williams. So Pembina is now behind both projects. And they're going through the permitting process separately, but they're clearly connected. You know, there's not going to be a pipeline unless there's a terminal. There's not going to be a terminal unless there's a pipeline. So even though technically, you know, the permitting process treats them differently, they need each other. And they're both now backed by the same company. Mm-hmm. And is that is the thinking behind the connector to, to link it up to other national pipeline systems? Yeah. So that existing hub that I said was on the California-Oregon border, that's a major energy hub that has a north-south pipeline. And it also has pipelines coming out from the Rocky Mountains. So it would connect to existing infrastructure. So it would allow fracked gas from like Colorado and Wyoming to come mm-hmm. into the pipeline and be exported. And it would also allow fracked gas from Canada, from British Columbia to get exported. Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about, you know, the who is behind the project, this company, Pembina. Can you dig in a little deeper there and talk about some of, the, you know, their efforts? You talked about eminent domain, but some of the strategies around, you know, working against these companies to stop this project. 
you know, one of the things that has become really successful in recent years is divestment work and going to the banks that are funding these projects and saying, hey, you know, you have social agreements, social standards regarding like Native American rights and sovereignty and or you have climate policies that state that you're going to, you know, not fund these horrible projects that are contributing to this climate chaos that we and future generations are experiencing. And so how can you do that while also funding, say, tar sands development Mm -hmm. and shining a public light on these banks and saying, hey, you know, you're doing maybe they don't have a policy and they need one and then they need to adhere to it. Or maybe they do have some policies with no legs that they're actually not applying to their work. And so there's been, I think, a really successful strategy in shining a spotlight on these banks and investors that are involved in these projects and, you know, making some public demands and encouraging customers to communicate to their banks that they don't want them funding these extreme fossil fuel projects. And we've seen a lot of this work, you know, over the last five or 10 years, reached with some some good success. And I think that some of the, the banks are, they're definitely paying attention. And I hope increasingly they will be moving in the right direction. And so the Jordan Cove Coalition isn't really deeply involved in that work, but we are starting to look into it more. There's no project-specific funding for Jordan Cove right now because it's been on this, like, you know, 10, 15-year trajectory, and there's a lot of permitting that I can talk about later, but they won't have a final investment decision until they acquire more permits. Mm-hmm. And so until there's a final investment decision, we don't know who specifically, there is no one specifically funding this project because like I said, the markets are so dynamic and they're changing so much. Nobody's committing to funding for it right now. However, Pembina has general operations support by banks. And so the top five banks of the top five banks that are funding Pembina, four of them are in Canada, and that's the Royal Bank of Canada, the Bank of Nova Scotia, CIBC, and TD Bank. Mm -hmm. So all four of those are Canadian banks. And then the fifth largest financer of Pembina is J.P. Morgan Chase, which has, has become a target of a lot of climate activists over the years for their financial support of these climate disaster projects like tar sands development and oil mm-hmm. and coal and gas. Yeah, and you know, we should remind listeners that, you know, this pipeline project is one of many pipelines in process around the country. And so, you know, I think maybe starting with, with Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline, the divestment strategy really took hold and I think it's being implemented all around the country on various pipelines that are traversing our country. And I encourage anybody just to Google pipeline map and you will see the extent of pipelines existing and proposed and it's it's impressive and not a really good way. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about the climate impacts. But before I do that, I'm going to let folks know that if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Eco News Report. I'm your host, Pete Nichols. And I'm speaking with Leslie Adams of Waterkeeper Alliance about the proposed Jordan Cove liquefied natural gas pipeline project. So let's let's talk about the the climate impacts, the difference between LNG and natural gas, and you know, thinking clearly, we are not in a uh, climate change awareness 
culture right now with the current administration and how, you know, what the impacts of these projects could be to that, you know, the overall impacts of climate change. Yeah, and I think I wanted to thank you for bringing up that point that, you know, Jordan Cove is a big pipeline site for us out here in the West, but there are pipelines being proposed all over the place, and there are communities that are organizing together in very sophisticated ways to combat these pipeline proposals that come from these kind of, you know, David and Goliath dynamics with fossil fuel companies. And I think it's really important that people pay attention to this stuff because this kind of infrastructure is is or would be locking us in to, you know, 20, 30 years of more fossil fuel use. And clearly this is a time science is showing us that we need to be weaning as fast as possible off of fossil fuels and not, you know, committing to the infrastructure that then we're going to have for decades to come. Mm-hmm. So thanks for bringing that up. I did want to just make a, yeah, a quick distinction between, you know, gas, liquefied natural gas and, and natural gas. Like I said, Liquefied natural gas is fracked gas, but it's liquefied solely for the purpose of transportation and shipping. And it's liquefied by being cooled to a temperature of negative 260 degrees Fahrenheit. And by doing that, it takes up about one six hundredth of the volume that gas does in its natural state. Mm. And so that process of supercooling the gas and then shipping it across the ocean and regasifying it really significantly increases the emissions footprint of that gas. So if you took the same amount of gas and you burned, you know, if it was was fracked in the United States and you used it in the United States, it would have a climate impact, but it would be a fraction of the impact if that same amount of gas was shipped through a pipeline, liquefied, put on an ocean-going vessel, you know, shipped all the way across the Pacific and then regasified. And so when you look at the carbon emissions of the process of liquefying the natural gas, you're looking at emission impacts that are much more on par with coal. So, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, still you might be hearing a lot of people say that, you know, natural gas is, you know, much cleaner than coal, and so it should be our bridge fuel. Right, right. We can continue using it. And people need to understand that when natural gas is LNG, liquefied natural gas, and shipped across oceans, that its carbon footprint is much more comparable, and some studies show actually more harmful than coal. So that's a big deal. And I also want to point out that Oil Change International recently just did a new study on Jordan Cove and found that the project would emit over 37 million metric tons of greenhouse gas pollution. And that is 15 times the amount of the Boardman Coal Plant, which is Oregon's only coal fire power plant. And because Oregon is doing some progressive things, we're actually closing that coal plant down in 2020. And so if Jordan Cove were to be built and the Boardman Coal Plant closes as planned, Jordan Cove would become the largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in Oregon. And that is a big concern and problem for a lot of Oregonians. And so, you know, the community response for this project has been really inspiring. Mm-hmm. As someone that's been involved in it for over a decade, you know, there's always been people involved and we've been, you know, trying our best. But what's been going on the last couple of years is just kind of mind-blowing. Like, it's so heartening to see so many different sectors of our community come together and work together that normally wouldn't to fight this project. And climate activists is definitely one of them. There's a lot of, I would say, more millennials, younger folks 
that are really concerned about the world that they're inheriting. And if you live anywhere in Southern Oregon or, or Oregon or the West Coast, you know, Jordan Cove is definitely one of the top issues for fossil fuel infrastructure that folks should be concerned about. And so, yeah, talk, let's talk a little bit more about that because, you know, it seems like following this a little peripherally that there is quite an impressive coalition. And that's very interesting to us here, even though we are technically in the bioregion, to see that kind of collaboration from landowners, from, you know, tribal people, from activists all working together towards a common cause. And what, you know, what do you think is the, you know, the impact? What are you seeing of the swell of, of the pro versus con here in this in this fight? Well, I would say the proponents of the project are are pretty small, but they are largely funded by Pembina. I mean, we've seen there are some of the unions that are in support of this project, and we've seen them get bussed into hearings to voice their support. But when you talk to them, like, they're not that committed or engaged, but somebody's paying for them <laughs> to, to get bussed down and show up and, and give some support to the project. But they're... There is some support for it in Coos Bay. You know, Coos Bay does need some, some economic mm-hmm. revitalization, right. and I am in support of that, but I'm in support of economic revitalization that also is a smart move for future generations, and I think we could be investing in new industries that would not harm the climate and tribal rights and salmon and water quality and all the other problems that Jordan Cove presents. Right. So, yeah, there, there are some folks in Coos Bay, I would say largely that's where the, the center of, of support would be. And like I said, a lot of that, I feel, is the the, the promises that Pembina is dangling in front of them. I mean, sure. one of the things that they're saying is jobs, right? It's going to create some jobs. And, you know, I'm all in support of people getting jobs when they need jobs. But in reality, what they're talking about is they're talking about a couple thousand construction jobs, but about half of those would be coming from trained out-of-state places. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be local jobs. And they're only proposing about 150 permanent jobs to operate the project once it happens. And, that, and that's what we're seeing with a lot of these pipeline projects is that the jobs promised are not there on the, on the backside of these projects. It's just not the numbers with right. a- automation and everything else. So, so, you know, this project was first proposed, I think he said back in the – late 2000s, was ultimately rejected by the Obama administration. Where is it sitting right now? What what kind of permitting is, is going on here? And, you know, to that point, where are your elected officials um, in Oregon sitting on this? Yeah, so I didn't mention that. So the, this is actually the third iteration of this project. The first one was the import that was stopped. The second one for export its denial was affirmed in late 2016 by the Obama administration, and then Trump was elected, and the company was encouraged and went back to FERC and said, we're going to reapply. So we're starting the third round here of permitting. The main federal, there's a lot of permits, and I'm not going to get into those weeds right now. I'll just say that the main federal agency that permits this project is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, and they're the ones that are doing the big draft environmental impact statement Mm-hmm. And we're anticipating that later this year, and that'll be a good time for the public to get involved. There's probably going to be public hearings that people can attend. There will be a comment period. 
but there are also various other federal agencies that are involved. About 80 miles of the pipeline would be on public land. So we have the Rogue River Siskiyou National Forest, the Umpqua National Forest, and the Klamath National, Klamath Wainema National Forest that would be impacted. And so you have the Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management's involved, U.S. Fish and Wildlife is involved, NOAA Fisheries involved. So there's a lot of agencies that need to weigh in, but FERC is the lead. And then we have a lot of state permits that are also involved. Uh, the Clean Water Act being one of the most important ones, mm-hmm. the Clean Air Act and the Coastal Zone Management Act all have state authority. So they're federal laws. The state has authority to make sure that, okay, the feds are proposing this project. Well, would doing this project in our state violate our state water quality standards? Would it violate the rules that the state has put in place to protect our water through the Clean Water Act? Right. That's where our Governor Kate Brown and our agencies in Oregon have a lot of power and taken a real strong, hard look at this project. The pipeline would be crossing 400 waterways, many of which are critical habitat for coho salmon, which is an endangered salmon. And it's also the largest proposed dredging project in Oregon history. So the dredging that would be required in Coos Bay would have really dramatic impacts on the bay and the estuary ecosystem. Also, the oyster communities, you know, there's a lot of family businesses out in Coos Bay and the oyster businesses and clamming would also be really impacted by this proposal. Yeah. So we're engaged in, in the state and the federal levels with that. And, the, and they're relatively supportive, you think, at this point? or? Well, you know, their job is to take a hard look at it. You know, their job is not to make a decision right now. They would, you don't want them to be biased, right? Right. We want them to reject this project because it would violate the law. And they can't say that right now because... They haven't, you know, we don't have all the documents we need and we haven't gone through the process. So, you know, Kate Brown has made really strong commitments to climate. So I'm, I'm hopeful there, but she has remained neutral on Jordan Cove. But moving forward with Jordan Cove would really make it increasingly unlikely that Oregon could reach its climate goals and the targets of the Paris Climate Accords, which Governor Kate Brown has committed to just last year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our commitment to that climate leadership would really be undermined by hosting a facility that su- supports these unsustainable global emissions. So we're hopeful that Oregon is going to be a leader on this. Um, you know, we have two senators, as all states do, Senator Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden. Unfortunately, Ron Wyden has not had a backbone on this issue. Senator Merkley used to support the project, but in December of 2017, he came out with an opinion editorial changing his position on this, which I thought was really upstanding of him. Mm -hmm. I kind of think it's unusual in these times to have a politician change their mind and say, you know what, I have new information and I was wrong. I'm going to change my position on something. And uh, he did that. And I thought his reasoning behind that was really solid. And I'm really proud to have him as our senator. Well, as always happens, we are quickly running out of time. And I plan on talking to you more about this in the future, and particularly, you know, the impacts to our rivers and and the ecology of these systems. But in the meantime, could you quickly tell us what people can do about this and how they can stay informed? Of course. The Waterkeeper Alliance is a member of the No LNG Exports Coalition, and we work in support of a lot of organizations on the ground, including our member organization, Rogue River Keeper, based in Oregon. So I encourage folks to support Rogue River Keeper. Klamath River Keeper and Columbia River Keeper are also playing a support role in this coalition. So if you want to support any of those water keepers, that would be awesome. And then I encourage folks to visit the coalition website, which is nolngexports.org. And there's a lot of information in there about things that I was not able to touch on today, including the really strong 
tribal opposition. A lot of the tribes that are impacted have become involved, and in particular, the Karuk, the Yurok, and the Klamath tribes have all passed resolutions opposing the pipeline. Excellent. Well, thank you, Leslie Adams from Waterkeeper Alliance. We really appreciate the work that you do, and we will keep up to speed on this and get you back on here really soon to, to give us some updates. Well, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. You too. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Pete Nichols, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Leslie Adams of Waterkeeper Alliance. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to KHSU Archives at khsu.org. And now we are also podcasting, and you can subscribe to that at iTunes. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin for engineering, and join us again next week for the Eco News Report.